During this time together, what we have tried to do is we've taken the narratives of the Gospels, several stories where Jesus sort of leaves us hanging or he sort of leaves somebody in the narrative hanging and uh, we don't really know what they did with the challenge that Jesus gave them. And of course, because all scripture is profitable, all scripture is applicable. So we are to find ourselves, that's the intention of this series, to find ourselves in the cliffhanger. How will we apply this? That's the idea here, because the scripture commands us to do that. So today is our last one, and we're going to be looking at the subject of forgiveness, and a question that Peter poses to Jesus, the answer that comes out, the parable that comes out of that. So uh, before we read it, though, I I remember hearing a story uh, years ago about old Harry Truman, the president of the United States back in the late 40s. He was a a man of few words, and he didn't even have a whole lot of emotion sometimes. And so they would go to church, he and his wife, and his wife sometimes wondered if he ever was even listening to what the pastor was saying. So as they were traveling home after the pastor preached a fiery sermon on sin, you know, his wife, they're driving down the road, and his wife says, so, uh, so honey, um... Did uh, you listen to the sermon today? He said, yeah. Uh, Well, what did the pastor preach on? And he thought for a minute, he said, I believe you preached on sin. And his wife said, yeah, but what did he say about sin? And Truman thought for a little while, he goes, I think he was against it. (laughs) When you leave this message today, and uh, somebody asks you, what did the pastor preach on? I think you'll get it. You'll say, he preached on forgiveness. And uh, when someone says, what did he say about it? You might respond, I think he was for it. The real question is, are you? Are you for it? Matthew chapter 18, right after Jesus has taught on how to restore one who is in sin or or take him out by way of church discipline, Peter is prompted to ask a question in verse 21. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as Seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That is 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife, his children, all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his servant, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed 
When, they, uh, when his fellow servants saw this, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the, literally to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus concludes as he looks back at Peter so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. A summary statement of this passage, this parable that goes along with it, uh, could be found in Ephesians, the very last verse, where we're told, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, As God in Christ did what? Forgave you. That verse that you're looking at right now literally set my first wife's heart free from what otherwise would have been a sure descent into the valley of bitterness. What I had done to her was no small thing. And I didn't deserve to be forgiven. But then, you know, in the words of Clint Eastwood, deserving's got nothing to do with it, right? Second only. The worst thing that could ever happen to you in this life and on into the next is to not be forgiven. To not have your sins forgiven. Second to that would be to live throughout life with an unforgiving spirit. Both, that is not being forgiven and living in life with an unforgiving spirit, both of those things will lead to hardness. Both will lead to an absolute cessation of any spiritual growth whatsoever. And both will lead to prison, a prison sentence. Every bit as real as the prisons with bars, only worse. And if you die in an unforgiven state, your prison will never end. The need to forgive is so universally recognized that Virtually every form of religion and cult and psychotherapy and self-help group and psychoanalysis and psychologist everywhere acknowledge that we need to forgive one another. In fact, I was going to all kinds of websites and science websites I, I, I watched a YouTube where this guru was out there with this crowd, a huge crowd of people who were coming to have their burdens released. And literally he talked like this. He sat at a table. He said, now relax. Let the strain drain from your face. Breathe deeply. Release the tension. 
It was very weird. I couldn't even watch the whole thing. It was strange and clearly ineffective. Everyone, who, who, everyone that was in that room walked out of that room with the same problem they had when they walked in. The word forgive, we use it a lot, but it's important that you understand the technical meaning of the word. The Greek word is the word aphiami. And it literally means to hurl, to hurl away, to let go. It doesn't mean you just sort of, it means to cast it away from you. It's not quite like JFK who said, forgive your enemies, but never forget their names. Our need to forgive and to virtually let go of the debt, the offense, that which is hanging in somebody else's life towards you, they owe you. The need for us to do this is so great that the great congregational preacher Henry Ward Beecher once said that when we say things like, I can forgive, but I can't forget, is only another way of saying, I will not forgive. Unquote. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, and I'm not assuming that everyone here is, in fact, I assume that several of you are not, okay? So I, let's get that assumption out of the way. Several of you are not forgiven, and that's your greatest need right here. But if you are a Christian, if you are truly a saved individual, you have ser- truly been born again, then you have no options. You are commanded to forgive. Now, I I can't think of another verse in the Bible that puts it more succinctly and really kind of just sort of coldly, but it's from the lips of Jesus, so let's look at it. Luke chapter 17, here's what it says. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, what? Say it. Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, and you can underline the word saying because it's in the original, saying, I repent. What? You must forgive him. Listen very carefully to this. You and I who are Christians are not given the option. Now listen carefully to this because this might be the only thing some of you need to hear today. You and I as Christians, if you're a Christian, are never given the option to judge the heart of the person asking you to forgive them. I know that's hard, and I know you do. I've done it too. You question the sincerity. It's pure lip service. They don't really mean it. But they have come to you and they've said, will you forgive me? In the words of the king of kings himself, if they come to you seven times a day saying, I repent, you must forgive them. I didn't say that. Jesus did. Do we question the sincerity of people from time to time? Of course we do. But it's then that we must trust the all-seeing eye of God to sort out whether the confessor meant it or not. And time usually tells as well, doesn't it? 
That's why John MacArthur is right when he says that forgiveness is the glory, is the glory of man. It is the highest human virtue because we're never more like God than when we genuinely, from the heart, forgive. And the teaching of this parable of the unforgiving servant is so blatantly obvious, it almost needs no interpretation. I mean, when you read it for the first time, even, you kind of you get your own dander up a little bit, don't you? How can you do that? And it comes as a result of a question, a question where Jesus was saying, this is how you restore somebody. If your brother sins against him, you go talk to him. If he repents, you forgive him, you're done. If he doesn't, then you get a couple of people, you go and you gather and you bring incremental pressure on him and hopefully he'll repent then. And if he repents, you're, you're done. And if he won't listen to them, you go tell the, the assembly and the assembly comes after him. And if he, if he listens to the assembly and repents, you're done. He's off the hook. And only if he doesn't do that, do you treat him like a heathen and a tax collector, you excommunicate him and he's out, so to speak. But Peter only heard one thing. You're done? The guy asked for forgiveness and you're done? And it was off. I mean, he, I mean, he kind of locked into that. He, he heard the words of Jesus and so he, he comes to Jesus and he says, so like, now he's been around Jesus for a while. He's already been commended. Peter, you know, blessed are you. You know, you just called me the Christ. You know, he's, he's had his head puffed up a few times. He's also stuck his foot in his mouth about 20 times. But he's been around Jesus for a while and he knows the way Christ works. So he says, you know, how much, you know, how often should I forgive my brother who sins again up to seven times? Which would be very magnanimous because the rabbi said you forgave somebody up to three times and then you cut him off. So he's saying, I'll double it plus one. That'll do. That'll do. And with that, it, you know, he's, he's thinking, I'm so magnanimous. He's probably expecting another praise. You know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven did. I mean, from here on in, you will be called a me, the one who lets the sins of others go. Instead, he said, no, how about 70 times 7? And there's no way to capture the astonishment on the face, let alone in the heart, of Peter. And we're sort of left hanging. We don't really know what he did with this. But we know what Jesus did. He takes us into a storyline. He gives us a parable to go from the raw command that we just said, if somebody repents, you forgive. Even if they just say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? You forgive them. You let it go. You hurl it away. So Jesus now takes us from the raw command to forgive to the heart of forgiveness itself. And it's pretty easy. The players in this story, they just sort of jump out, right? We don't even, I mean, we'll just, the king is God. The king represents God. Owner of all things to whom every one of us must give an account someday. All of us must stand before him at one form of judgment or another. So the king in the parable is God. The debtor, well, that's us. 
The one with the insurmountable debt, that's us. It's interesting, I, I think of the, the psalmist said, the redemption of their soul is costly. No amount is ever enough. Have you ever read that? We, we are the debtor. The amount due, the cost to cover the sin is insurmountable. One talent was about 100 pounds. It would be, one talent would be worth about a half a million dollars in today's economy. This guy owed 10,000. He wouldn't pay this off in 100 lifetimes. Even if he, he won the lotto, the big giant jackpot he he wouldn't have been able to pay it off so you know don't get any thoughts going there which makes his plea all the more pathetic i mean this kings kings in bible times were absolute despots they'd take you your family your kids and they'd put you in what was called a debtor's prison you would work you basically become a slave until you pay it off he would never pay it off thus he'd be in prison forever Which makes his cry even more pathetic. Oh, you know, have patience with me. Huh? What, like a thousand years patience? I'll pay it all. So the amount due represents our sin. There is, you will never be able to do enough good. You will never be able to attend church enough. You'll never be able to do enough good things for your neighbor. You'll never be able to pray enough. You'll never be able to read your Bible through many, uh, enough to be able to get rid of this sin problem you have in your life. It's insurmountable. And the cry for mercy, when he says, have pity on me, this is the cry, this represents our true heart in seeking mercy through the cross. And by the way, it's always about the heart. Remember what Paul said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because it's not just a head thing. Salvation is a heart thing. When God changes your heart, he changes your life. And it's the same thing when it comes to forgiving other people. Your heart has to be in it. Receiving forgiveness and extending forgiveness is always a heart issue. Always a heart issue. The forgiveness itself, and it just, in verse 27, he just forgives him. No fanfare, he just forgives him. This represents the amazing act of God by the virtues of his son Jesus who died on the cross in our place for our sins as a substitute for us. This pictures represents the act of God whereby when we trust what Christ has done for us, he wipes the slate clean. He wipes it clean. Any of you Dave Ramsey fans? Raise your hand if you're a Dave Ramsey fan. How about a third of you? He's got, you know, he's the finance guy, you know, recogn- universally as the, you know, the, he's the money guru, right? And, uh, you know, he's got his Friday, you know, debt-free Friday, you know, he gets some couple up there and they count it down. They've had some huge debt and they've wiped it out and now they have no debt and they're living in Maui now or whatever. And they're, you know, they come on the radio and they go, one, two, three, 
I'm debt free, they call out. And everybody cheers, and rightfully so. The whole purpose of these couples' exuberant happiness is that you and I, through the radio that we're listening to, will feel, literally feel the sense of relief because the borrower is what? Subject to the lender. If we could only realize the debt that has been paid for you and me. I, I was thinking about this, and we're going to be baptizing people next month on two different occasions. I think what I'd like to do is just before I dunk them, I want them to say, I'm debt free! <laughs> because there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I just think half of our problem is we just don't realize it. And that's the reason why Jesus gave us this parable, because this guy didn't realize it. And neither do half of you. And that's the reason why you're holding grudges against other people. You are either unforgiven. You've, you, you don't understand the cross. You've never understood what took place. You've never been born again. You've never been saved. Or you are so stinking shallow in your understanding of what Christ did for you. Because if you even understood a scintilla, of the depth of forgiveness, you would not withhold forgiveness. So, the amount due the freed debtor that a fellow debtor owes him, the hundred denarii, that's like three months' wages. It's a pittance. And the intention here is for us to go into this very story And see how withholding forgiveness is such a blasphemously shameful act on our part. And you'll see it as such if you understand the depth of your own forgiveness. The the, the freed debtor's treatment of the other is the shameful way we have been. When we, being so greatly forgiven, refuse to forgive those who, quote, owe us. Unquote. But that doesn't happen when God's people apply God's forgiveness to the one who owes them. Converted sinners are forgiven and they're forgiving. And this is because they understand what took place at the cross. I alluded to Ephesians 4.32 a little earlier. My first wife, what I had done to offend her deeply. I didn't deserve to be forgiven. But it was like the next day that she and her Bible reading came to Ephesians 4.32. She quoted it to me and she said, how, could I, how can I withhold forgiveness to you when, I, when I've been so forgiven by God? And I mean, my wife, she was your quintessential goody two-shoes. But she was a sinner with an insurmountable debt. And she recognized it. And on that basis, she forgave me. Now, you're probably thinking, to those of you who have been unwilling to forgive, now listen, to you who have been unwilling to forgive someone in your life, here's what's happening in your heart, whether you realize it or not. You're thinking, 
If I forgive them, am I not absorbing the loss? Am I not, in a sense, paying the debt that they owe me? Am I not being called to suffer if I forgive someone? And the answer is, yeah, you are. But then again, that's when you're acting just like Jesus. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, writes this. When we, forget, when we forgive, we forgo our opportunity to return affliction on the perpetrator. We assume ourselves the debt of the transgression against us. But this is exactly what the Lord God did for us on the cross. And if we claim his forgiveness without forgiving others while remaining petty, grudge-holding people, then we do not fully understand the cross and we retain upon ourselves the death penalty for our sins, unquote. Have you been hurt? Have you been offended? Welcome to humanity. Have you forgiven? The verse before that verse that set my wife's heart free is a verse which basically gives us six evidences. I'll look at them very quickly. Six evidences of what happens when you've not forgiven an offense. It, it, what happens is you have bitterness Wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31. There's the list of things that take place. Just mark it down because that's you. Bitterness. Hurt is what you do to others. Bitterness is what you do to yourself. Paul describes it as something that just sort of springs up. And that's when you spring up and you react, that's just evidence that you're, you're not a forgiving individual and you've not forgiven the offense. Wrath is the, is the Greek word thumos. It means to be intensive, explosive. Just, you think of a person just explodes violently. That's a wrathful person who is harboring an unforgiving spirit. Am I hitting anybody yet? Anger, the word anger, is a different word. Now, this is very insightful to me, so listen carefully. The word means to settle in. It means a settled anger. You've settled in with your attitude towards someone, and time has been no friend to you. I know, I, I just called out a pastor recently who had somebody who he does not trust, who he believes is a phony, has come to him and asked if he could have an audience in order to seek forgiveness. And the pastor told me, I heard it with his own lips, I'm not going to let him until I'm ready. And I said, you are a disobedient man of God. You have no right to do that. You have no right to judge his heart. But what had happened is, over several months period of time, it seemed clear to me that this particular pastor had settled in, so to speak, in his attitude toward this guy. Have you? Time will not be your friend. Clamor is an onomatopoetic expression like foosh, bang, swish, swish. 
It's a sound. It's the sound of your heart. You know how it is when you, when you make these, these sounds that come out of your mouth out of disgust? You know what I'm talking about? That's the sound of your heart. And all it is is just another evidence that you're, you're not forgiving. In fact, one writer describes the word as brawling, argumentative, adversarial. One who is full of clamor will seek every opportunity to air their grievances with offending parties and anyone else in the vicinity. Loving confrontation when we have been wronged is, is commanded, but clamor is a contentious attitude that confronts others solely for the purpose of getting even or even winning. Clamorous, unforgiving, evil speaking. You want to know if you've forgiven someone? Just ask yourself how you talk about them. How do you talk about them right now? Malice, you know, you've heard hurt people hurt people. You've moved from the, all the accompany aspects of anger to wanting to hurt your offender. I came across this quote recently. It's very powerful. I encourage you to memorize it even. It goes like this. Lewis Smead said this. You know that forgiveness has begun when you recall those who've hurt you and you feel the power to wish them well. That's when the release has taken place. Quickly, let's end with these thoughts. And I know I'm biting off way more than I can chew here. But here's all, just sum it up. One, there's no forgiveness for those who will not forgive. Just mark it down. There is no forgiveness to you who will not forgive, even in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? Literally in the same way as. That's why Spurgeon called that the awful petition. And it's the only element of the Lord's Prayer that he repeats at the end of the Lord's Prayer. You don't forgive, you're not forgiven. Just mark it down, just as simple as that. Secondly, there is no forgiveness for those whose heart is not in it. Do you see the last words in this parable? So Jesus picks up and gives a commentary, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. And then this little parenthetical thought, this little prepositional phrase, from your heart. It's always a hard issue. Just as it's a hard issue to be saved, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's a hard issue when it comes to forgiving other people. Jesus says it's got to come from your heart. Listen, just as belief must come with the heart, forgiveness must come from the heart. And I, I specifically put it like that because if you have been, if you, if you have become a receptor of God's forgiveness, then you can become a dispenser of that forgiveness. It's only a heart that has received the grace of forgiveness that can dispense that forgiveness to others. Our hearts, our hearts need to do more thinking. When it comes to both asking for forgiveness and dispensing forgiveness. Think about what you're doing. Think about the, the sin. Think about the debt you owe the other individual when you go and you say, will you please forgive me? And think about what you're doing when you say, I forgive you. You are releasing them. 
Here's the third thing. There is no limit in a grace-filled heart to forgive. To a grace-filled heart, 70 times 7 does not equal 490. In fact, to put it differently, in a grace, in a non-grace-filled heart, in a legalistic heart, 70 times 7 equals 490. Only to those who are counting. Because Jesus isn't talking about counting here. And finally, there's no mercy for the merciless. And you see that there, don't you? Send him to the jailer. The ESV is a weak translation. The word means, in this case, the word means, New King James, torture. That's what it means. This wasn't just some guy who stood there and held a vigil over a prison, you know, or held guard over prisoners. This is a guy whose duty was to beat the prisoner. He was a legal, hired torturer. We know there is an eternity of torture for those who never seek the forgiveness represented and actually at the cross. And you need to go there if you've never had your sins forgiven. Jesus will wipe the deck clean. We know there's forgiveness. And we know there's an eternity of torture for those of you who refuse to be forgiven by going to the cross. But there is a life of torture. To those who have received the freeing forgiveness of the cross, refuse to dispense it to others. I know a man who was released from prison several years ago only to go into another prison. Every bit is real. To this moment, though he claims to know Christ, he is mean He is merciless, and he is an unforgiving man. He's unhappy. He's unfulfilled. And for the most part, he's unfriended. He has no joy. And he lives in a prison called merciless. And for you who are merciless, there is no mercy. But to those who are merciful, well, Jesus himself said, he shows what? He shows the mercy. So where are you on all of this? Do you need to have your sins forgiven by the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of the universe, who came to this world and died for you? If you will humble your heart and place your faith in Jesus even though you don't understand all of it now, that is, you don't understand the depth of it all now, it's starting to take place. and You'll have a whole lifetime to realize how, how deep your sins have been forgiven. But if you sense that and your need is there, then trust Christ as your Savior right now from your heart. But as you know, most of this message is to you who claim to know Jesus, but you're harboring. You're harboring ill will. You're harboring, you're holding the debt against somebody else. You're unwilling to forgive. And you have created your own prison. 
It's affecting your mind. It's affecting your body. It's affecting your emotions. And this is the reason all the psychobabalists are out there trying to help people to get, to get forgiveness because they see what it's, it's just racking people. But only Jesus can give you that forgiveness. And if you've received it, you have the capacity to forgive. And indeed, you're commanded to do so without question. Let God deal with the heart of the one who's seeking forgiveness, right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be able to get into your word. Look at this cliffhanger. We don't know what Peter did with this information. But we sense from his own epistles later on that as a grace-filled man, he learned the power of forgiveness. Indeed, Lord, it was Peter who would say that when... Like Jesus, we need to, when we are reviled, we don't revile back. We, we commit ourselves to the one who judges righteously. That's a good place to be. I pray for those, Lord, who have created their own prisons here. Someone has hurt them, and it's real. It's been a real hurt. They have been offended. They have been hurt. Somebody has lied to them. Somebody has um, said things that are untrue. Think, someone has done something against them. There are people in this room, Lord, who have had marriages that have fallen apart and they're broken over this and they struggle because they've heard this command. Lord, as you gave them grace when they received Jesus, would you give them the grace to dispense the love of forgiveness, the grace of forgiveness? I pray, dear God, that you would remove all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice and anything else harboring that we harbor in our hearts and help us to learn the heart of forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name.